Coming up on the Naughtiest Naughty. Somebody asked me, what do you, what do you think of the, of the Gallagher brothers always fighting everybody? I, I think I said I would have to just wrestle them to the ground and tell them to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Naughtiest Naughty on a Monday, a very special episode because it's all worked out very nicely, I've got to admit, hasn't it, Scott? The World Cup of 2001 winner, we spoke to them back in, I think, March, before the World Cup was even a twinkle in our eye, and uh, and and here is the winner, Brendan B. Brown of Wheatless. That's worked out very handily, isn't it? People might think it's a fix, but I can promise you it really, really wasn't. <laughs> no, I think it's the stars of a line for this, haven't it? Yeah, they really haven't have. They? Yeah, for God's sake. They really, really have. Um, so, let's get straight into it. It's our chat with Brendan. Brendan B. Brown. He's going to tell you about the beginnings of Wheatus, the story behind Teenage Dirtbag, which is, as, as we discovered when talking about it, a lot darker than you might think. Dark. And of course, how they came to cover a little respect as well. Plus some chat about the Long Island scene, uh, how they were not really big in America, but they were very big over here. And stick around for his very surprising pick for his <laughs> Naughties series winner. Let's get into it. Brandon, how are you and where are you? I'm doing well. I'm uh, in our uh, studio in New York City. Oh, nice. Uh, which is also uh, kind of where we live. <laughs> I've mentioned a little respect, which we want to talk about in a bit, because obviously that was a big, big deal. Uh, but really, Teenage Dirtbag's kind of where it's all been at. We'll get into that in a bit. But what's been happening for you in lockdown in New York? What's your experience of the whole thing been like? Uh, well, uh, at first it was... Uh, really disorientating we were um getting ready for our 25th our 20th anniversary tour i should say now i'm talking about the 25th because that's that's all we're going to wind up doing (laughs) but uh um but the uh yeah we had something like 250 dates booked for the next 15 months or something and all of it uh wiped away we were going to australia we were going to europe we were talking about going to japan for the first time we were definitely coming over to see you guys and we had a big long run in the states, and it's it's all been uh, you know dished. Mm-hmm. But uh, the uh, we were working on, uh, and still are working on the the re-record of our first album. Uh, as you may or may not have read somewhere, the masters seem to be missing, and uh, we are re- recreating the whole entire thing from scratch. Yeah, the first ten songs, um, and also uh, about another twelve that were sort of felt like the period from over the years that, you know, we always said, oh, that one's kind of sounds like it belongs on album one. So let's not record it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so we have now a, a, a shelf of those songs and we're kind of um, finishing them up. So the final release of 2020, the, the uh, 20th anniversary was supposed to have 20 songs on it and it shall, but, um, but it'll <laughs> look more like 2021, 20, 22 kind of, you know? Yeah. Uh, we're looking to, I think we're going to be finished uh, sometime around August because and always with an asterisk, <laughs> there is a planned American tour with uh, with Alien Ant Farm. Oh, so amazing. We're, we're, amazing. Uh, we're, we're, yeah. Yeah. Love them, yeah. That is proper nostalgia there as well. So these, these are all the tracks that moved me from kind of probably bubblegum pop into actual what would class as talented musicians. And it drew my attention <laughs> to a lot of actual uh, instruments as well. So on this podcast... At the in two thousand and one, I was sixteen. Uh, Liam was five. Yeah, you five, yeah. Liam. Uh-huh. 
So on this podcast, we come from two very different angles. Wow, that's diff- that's that's different generations, even. Um, yeah. So uh, so we were the transitional drug for both of you, eh? Is that, is that what you're saying? Pretty yeah, much, I think yeah. So yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Plus, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I grew up in the American Pie era as well, so I have a big attachment to American Pie films, um, and obviously Loser being very special and very very much linked to you guys with the track as well too. Right. What what was it like in the early stages? Like how were you forming the band? What was going on for you guys? How did you just kind of well, ver- version one of you come together? So I got out of college around 90, uh, in 1995 and uh, immediately moved out and got a, a shitty little apartment uh, closer to Queens, New York. And I was working day jobs and all the while kind of developing what I thought would be my own band where I sang and played guitar. I had been in bands and played CBGBs and done the whole sort of like New York city, like post hardcore kind of wannabe thing, you know? Um, and, uh, uh, had some ideas for songs that I had developed in college, but just didn't really have the confidence of voice and didn't really know what to sing or how to, how to convey anything. So spent about 95, 96, 97, uh, sort of privately developing my own style and my own, guitar um ideas for like i was going to play the acoustic through a big amplifier like a metal guitar this this set up this sort of ironic thing you know um and as a new york band we were kind of like always going all the way back hit influenced by hip-hop and hardcore which was this sort of nexus here in in new york city so um it was like that it was developing my technique for making records that i would sing on a four track and then Around 97, we started playing out. Uh, my brother got back from college. He joined the band on the drums. And and uh, we started um, doing that music that I had worked on for about three years in isolation. And, you know, I should say prior to that, I'd been in and out of a few bands that had record deals and always as a side player, like uh, just observing, watching all the kind of scary nonsense that goes on, you know, <laughs> and narrowly avoiding some very bad contracts myself. And... Um, <laughs> So luckily was, was sort of a little bit savvy that way when it came time to, to sing my own songs, um, with my own sort of front, front person, um, setup. So, uh, 98, 99, we started playing clubs between, uh, the Mercury Lounge and the Luna Lounge downtown New York City, um, on the Lower East Side and very quickly had people we didn't know showing up to hear Teenage Dirtbag and, the other songs from the first record we were covering a little respect since the beginning that was in the set oh wow yeah um and a couple of other covers that we had that are that we're going to eventually do a covers record of uh cheap trick uh surrender and uh Willie Nelson's Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up To Be Cowboys. Mama, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. A couple don't of other songs, Jesse's Girl by Rick Springfield. Jesse's Girl, I wish that I had Jesse's Girl. We were trying to throw in this sort of eclectic um, Thing. We even had a we had a Public Enemy cover that we were working on, uh, Channel Zero. Oh, looking for that hero. She watched Channel Zero. But uh, we never really got there with it in time to to present it live because Public Enemy, it turns out, is, is harder to play and, and rap than you think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, but anyway, we got to a point where uh, that group of initially family and friends coming to the first few shows had turned into 
a line around the block kind of thing every time we played and we were getting Friday and Saturday nights at these clubs, which were national clubs. So it was supposed to be a band from out of town that was playing and we were playing the headlining slots. And so, uh, in real short order, December of 99, we signed a deal with Columbia records. And, uh, the, this one stipulation that the president, then Donnie Einer had agreed to is that we would produce our own record. Cause we had to that point, we were giving it away, giving parts of it away anyway, at the shows on CD. So, um, the following spring or early spring, March of 2000, we completely destroyed my mother's house. Um, <laughs> she wasn't, she wasn't stoked to see us moving in for, for three and a half weeks with all, and you know, we were back, but we were back with gear, you know, there's all this stuff you see behind you, <laughs> mm. behind me. So it, we, we, we destroyed the house for about three and a half weeks to finish the proper recording of what you know as the first sweetest record. We mixed it in Nashville in the first week of April, and the rest is uh, kind of public information. I want to know about that first gig then that you had to do to your peers, because personally, there's nothing actually more frightening than actually friends and family. Uh, that seems to be intense. Do you remember any of the feelings on stage from those first gigs and how did the feelings evolve over the years? Well, if I'm, if I'm going for the first performance, it wasn't on stage. It was like in my mother's kitchen. <laughs> It was like my grandmother, my sister, my brother, I don't think my dad was home, but, um, and my mom just, uh, just kind of sitting around and I went, Hey, can I play you guys something? And they had never heard me sing my own songs. Mm -hmm. So this was the first, I, I had grown up in the house playing guitar since I was eight or nine, you know, like just shredding every Metallica riff or Rush riff or whatever for, for, for years and years, driving them nuts. But I had never properly sat down and said, Hey, I composed this. So uh, the first one I, I played for them, I think, was a song called Whole Amoeba, which is on our second record. But um, then, then Teenage Dirtbag after that, and they were like, <laughs> oh, you, you've been working on something here. How did their faces look whenever you did high notes? <laughs> I think my mother goes, you sound like Prince! You sound like Prince! You know? Because mm -hmm. she loved the way Prince sings, you know. So um, anyway, it was, yeah, she was into the doo-wop groups, uh, you know, Frankie Valley and uh, the Temptations and all that stuff. And she was, we were always singing for Christmas. We were always singing the Drifters version of White Christmas. I, I'm dreaming of Christmas. So we have this family version of it where they're all the... Like the whole, like just insane harmonies that we've developed for, you know, the drifters would be like, what are you people? What is wrong with you? Mm -hmm. So yeah, we, uh, it was a moment of like, okay, well, this is a little different. This isn't a, we're not singing along on a Christmas song here. This is a composition, for, you know, so, and then the, the live shows, um, incredibly nervous at first, like really just, um, because I had worked long enough on the sound to make it original, to make the t even the technology of it, the acoustic guitar through the distorted pedals uh, with a full rock sound. I was doing that. I never played an electric guitar in Weedis. I was an electrified acoustic, but I never had a proper solid body Fender Strat or, you know, Gibson or anything like that. Never. It was always the acoustic. And I just remember being really insecure about that at first because I had never seen anybody do it. Um, with the exception maybe of Willie Nelson, who plays in a, a nylon string through sort of tube amps, but he wasn't doing, you know, shooting for Randy Rhodes Overdrive or anything like that, like like I was. So, uh, yeah, it was like, 
how's this going to come off? Is people going to be fingers in their ears, like wincing or what's going to happen? You know, so I kind of had a, had a few stumbles at first and then got my head around it. And it was teenage dirtbag was always this thing that like, even if the sound sucked, people were like, well, wait a minute, I want to hear this, you know? Um, so uh, it was, we always had that, that uh, rescue ladder of teenage dirtbags <laughs> to get us out of the swamp that we developed for ourselves. So, um, and we got better at the other stuff and eventually it, it worked out and, uh, there was, I, I remember feeling super confident about shows toward the end of 1998 and the rest of 1999. We played a lot of live shows in the city. And, you know, at this point, our friends and family were kind of fighting to get up front, <laughs> even though they couldn't. And then some of them gave up and were like, oh, I'm going to sit in the back, you know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I was like, super nervous at first and then and then uh gradually understanding that it, it had value that what we were doing was working you know so around, around this sort of time you were building up your own following within the the new york scene within the community what was the transition from being that band with its scene to being like a mainstream success like being a chart success kind of across across the world what was the transition what was the bridge into that change of change of life the the first thing we ever did that made me feel like it was going to be a thing. Joey Ramone invited us to open for him at CBGB's for, for our record, to make it our record release party. Wow. And he was playing a show there that night with Ronnie Spector. Now, I had been on the road with Joan Jett and the Blackhearts as an opening act, a, a lead guitarist in another band called Hope Factory. Mm. And I had bumped into some, some of my icons in New York City here and there, never professionally really, not... But this was different. This was like um, somebody, somebody we felt was a sort of a you know like unassailable. Actually, reached out to us as a New York band and kind of pulled us up out of where we saw ourselves at the time was that we were just a bunch of schmucks from Long Island, you know. So, um, so we uh, we felt different about that. And then immediately after that, we were on the road in the states. And then the next moment for us that reflected that transition was we had had a rough run of touring in sort of October, November of that year in America, you know, playing Lawrence, Kansas in front of two people, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Um, the usual sort of story for a first band, you know, first tour, first single. And um, when I got back home to New York and I was like ready to take a month off because I had bronchitis and I hadn't been able to get well on tour and it was just like, you know, lost 25 pounds or whatever, you know, I was looking, looking pretty ratty. And, um, our A&R from Columbia called me up, uh, and said, you're going to Australia next week. I said, I'm not, I'm not going to Australia next week. You don't understand. <laughs> like you think that, but that's not going to happen. And he's like, no, 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 no. You're going to Australia next week. I was like, Kevin, I'm really sick. I might have to go into the hospital. I should get some antibiotics. Like something like I've been coughing for a month and a half, man. And he's like, you have uh, a quadruple platinum single in Australia. <laughs> and I don't really feel like I, I'm recalling it. Like, it's hard for me to even shape the words because it just didn't make any sense. It was like, what? Like, so we wound up going down there and played four, four or five shows live in Australia because Australia is a tiny little place, like population wise. But we flew all over the country, like crazy town. And uh, who were also on the road at the time, I might add. And, um, <laughs> and then we, uh, we wound up on TV down there, like, which was our sort of another sort of like, what? Like, you know, um, 
And then uh, about two months later, the same exact thing happened in the UK. Uh, and then we were, <laughs> this I really thought must have been a mistake when we were invited to play the Prince's Trust party in the park. Wow. I was like, there's no way that the royal family is okay with this. Like, there's been a mistake. <laughs> you know, like, so, uh, so I, uh, you know, I mean, it was a weird out of body experience. And a cool thing was for us, kept us on the ground was that we never blew up in the States that first year. Mm. We would just go do really amazing things overseas. You know, we opened for James Brown one time in Belgium <laughs> wow. that year. And, but then, but then back to, the states and like nobody knows us you know like kind of like had to live at mom's house for a month and whatever you know like that kind of thing like it was weird it was an interesting dichotomy yeah i think that's one of the things we've learned from this podcast is how difficult it actually is to break the states whether you're from there or not um because we do we see some really strange billboard positions that we're like really that didn't do that in america yeah um some things are are, are quite devastating to be fair whenever you see the way that it's kind of it's panned out. If we throw you right back to then the kind of construction of Teenage Dirtbag, talk us through the story of like developing the actual track. Oh uh, well, um, the setting is you know the town I grew up in, Northport, Long Island, in in uh, 1984, a sort of dark and violent place. Um, uh, there was a lot of stigma around heavy metal because of the murder that had happened. I don't know if you read anything about that, but um, yeah, it was a strange uh, Satan murder in my hometown when I was 10 years old. And I was already walking around with this tape case full of ACDC, you know, and Iron Maiden. And uh, <clears throat> I had some prints in there too. You know, I had some Huey Lewis in the news right next to, you know, Iron Maiden, you know. I didn't see the difference really <laughs> at the time. Uh, but uh, the kid who did the murder got arrested with an ACDC shirt on. And that was it. It was like, you you know, what are you listening to? What's this in your, in your cassette player? You know, <clears throat> the whole nine. And there was curfews and stuff. So I had that setting in mind when, when I started the narrative of Teenage Dirtbag. Not really being, uh, you know, forget about being unpopular or any of those notions. Just not being known at all. Yeah. You know, like not not being seen at all. So, um, I wanted to write it from, from very much from an outsider's perspective. And then it was like, I got through the first two verses and it was this authentic story to me. And I was like, well, what's the rest of the story? I don't want to really tell that. That's a little bit like, that'll bum everybody out. So let's, let's, I am made of, uh, a happy ending, mm. you know? So, uh, yeah, I should say in that m my personal high school experience is nothing like that happy and like not even close you know yeah so um so i just made it made it made a happy ending for it made gave everybody what they kind of wanted like what the what the song built up to in a narrative sense so it's two-thirds true to life and then you know false in the end and because of the backstory do you ever whenever you're performing it depending on like your mood and stuff just find it difficult to actually perform do you ever get emotional from like a historical and nostalgic point of view the first the first time that ever really began to began to affect me was on tour with Busted in 2016. We did their reunion tour, right? <clears throat> we were direct support. James Bourne and the, and the boys were were kind enough to bring us along for that. It was like I think it was 18 or 19 sold out arena shows in the UK. Now we had never done anything like that before over there. We play our club shows. 
we have a good, strong club family that we always go to see. We have a great time. We get better at what we do, but we had never done anything like this. And these kids were much younger, right? And I just remember kind of, it had to really focus every night when they took it, because they take it away from us and they sing it themselves. And they sing it right at the point that it becomes false, right? They take the fake verse away from us and they sing it. And we've done that for years, given them the chance. But for the first time, it really started to sink in like, oof, man, like, would they, you know, I'm not sure that they'd want to have the conversation about where this all came from. You know, it's not really, it's not really as nice as the song, yeah. you know. And in some sense, you start to feel a bit like a phony that way because now it's like 20 years later and these kids are just as into it as they've ever been, which is a little bit strange. You feel like, you feel like, you kind of want to retreat a little bit into like the smaller version of yourself, like where you kind of like, you know, all the people in the front row, you know, like that kind of thing. Cause we have made a lot of lifelong friends playing clubs over the last 20 years, but those arenas were impersonal and huge. And here's the song coming back at me in this like sort of cultural moment. Right. So I did have to struggle with that during that 2016 tour. And since then it's been like a recurring sort of like thing. I got to kind of like talk to somebody about, you know, sometimes, but, um, but yeah, I mean, the, the rest of the stories, kind of my, my own personal life and where, where the song actually, why it exists would be pretty unpleasant conversation, you know, for, 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 for pop kids anyway, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that you've seen a noticeable difference in the, the attitude towards mental health? Because when I was that age, there was no conversation about it. And you called people mad, you called people psycho. The narrative in films and things like that was that that was very much the case. And I remember like being younger and listening to Kelly Rowland's Stole, I think is that 2003, 2004, and being like, what the hell is this about? Because it wasn't as, I know you've got the, the different verse, but in the music video to that, it was very blatant and I'm, I'm very visual more than auditory. Mm. And um, I remember watching that video and then thinking, I need to listen to these words again um and again a, a lot of teenage dirtbag you know you, you don't see that same kind of thing in the video but kelly rolling stole freaked me out but it made me start thinking and actually it was important but mental health wise do you think there's been a massive development and yeah loads loads of progress if you ask me i mean when, my childhood was so goddamn violent it was ridiculous like i was in more fistfights than i could count by the time i was nine all right you know and it only got worse you know so um now, you know, now it's like, um, it's like we've really kind of had a moment of the whole, I don't know if the whole earth, but at least Western culture that I'm exposed to predominantly is feeling this like, well, wait a minute, that's not okay anymore, you know? Um, and everybody, everybody growing up was just like, walk it off, man. Like, what are you talking about? Don't complain, you know, like what, don't be a baby, you know? Um, I mean, I had this one time, I remember this, and I tell this story sometimes, and people are like, what? I was uh, pretty routinely bullied by some older kids on, the, on my block, right? From the earliest ages, I mean, as far back as I can remember. And when I was about fourth grade, fifth grade, they broke my arm. Oh, shit. And they, they did it on purpose, mm -hmm. right? So, like, they recruited me in to play, to play goalie in, a, in a, a soccer match, football match, right? And the oldest brother... Um, once he saw that I had effectively gotten down and grabbed the ball with one hand, sort of like this, he ran as fast as he could and he kicked it full, full speed with it stopped in my hand already. This was not a pl play was over. 
the play was over. I was getting up and he fractured my arm. And I remember that day it was like, ah, you know, F you, go home, cry baby kind of thing. Showed up the next day in a cast and they got the same abuse. Mm -hmm. So it was like, it wasn't like, uh, it was just completely normalized to be in a violent, hostile place all day. Yeah. You know? Um, and I'm glad to see that that's not a thing so much anymore. I, I don't want to speak for everybody. I know some people are in horrible situations still, but, yeah. um, you know, at least culturally we're having a conversation about how that's not, that's not the way to live. That sounds exhausting. Like growing up, I grew up in Northern Ireland in the middle of a civil war. Yeah. Um, but that's, that sounds exhausting in a completely different way, really. But do you think they were lacking in empathy or do you think it was just like a, an attitude forced upon in the environment? I'm not sure what, I mean, the the town was a sort of like a, a lobster town in decline, you know, it was a mostly fishermen and stuff and um, uh, very working class. Um, now somewhat mixed, but back then sort of lower working class. Uh, and um, there was just a tough guy thing. Mm -hmm. I don't even know what else to call it. It was like sort of wannabe mafioso, like hard ass stuff. Yeah. Lots of people carrying knives. All, everybody carry. Everybody had a pocket knife when I was 12 years old. Wow. And I don't mean like a, a Swiss army knife. I mean like a, a hunting knife, a buck knife that you could murder mm. somebody with, you know? Yeah. Like, um, you know, it was, uh, it was a lot of drugs, tons and tons of hard drugs. I knew kids when I was 12, 13 who were doing heroin, you know, like, um, uh, lots of stories of when we became adults afterwards, checking back in with people is like, oh yeah, his dad was a heroin addict and that's why he died. That's why we could never see him in the afternoon. You know, that kind of like, it was a, it was a darker place than we, and then anybody was able to acknowledge. And I think that that was just part of some ongoing sickness, maybe post Vietnam or post World War II suburbia, you know, you can call it, call it what you will, but it was always sort of like, just tough it out. And only recently, were there ever conversations about like, maybe this is not the way to go. Like maybe this is why we keep getting into trouble, you know? Yeah. And then you've become positive, you know, you've used music to actually kind of escape that scenario. Really? Haven't you? I was using it to escape back then. <laughs> I was using, yeah. I, I was escape. I was escaping into my mother's living room with a guitar amp and my, you know, little, uh, Fernandez Stratocaster in, in 1985, yeah. you know? So, um, yeah, it's been going like that since. Yeah, I mean, fr from my perspective as somebody who, like I say, I was five when the song came out in the UK. And obviously, I'll have just heard it and just thought it was the most beautiful, sunny, happy song. And only doing the the research now for this podcast, you know, I've spent these entire 20 years since just kind of not really delving deeper. And then reading that story, for me, it was, it was such a such a weird thing that I never thought would, would come up. Do, do you... Where do you where do you stand on fans who like like me have never heard that story and, and are you okay with them just singing it gleefully without the the backstory or it, it's 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 not one? Well, so yeah, I mean, and yeah, in in a sense, it's it was uh, maybe not mentally mental health wise, but it was perhaps beneficial that we didn't really discuss, and I didn't feel it appropriate, nor would I feel comfortable discussing like all of that when we first started touring and we were first on TV and stuff. I mean, you're not going to get on CD UK and say, Oh, this song came from the Satan woods back home. <laughs> you know, like it, like it just doesn't, doesn't wash. Right. Yeah. But over time, I think that allowed people because I didn't, you know, force its origin story out 
down anybody's throat at first. They mm -hmm. kind of were able to relate to it on their own terms. And that, ironically, that is the long life of the song, because if you can make it your story, there's always been more important that whatever people see in the song themselves mm. is what they're able to have it for. You know, it's theirs. It's theirs on that level. It belongs to them, not to me, not to my weird, you know, childhood or anything. So mm -hmm. it, the reason it, it continues is because of people putting themselves into the narrative and not my, you know, history of it. Yeah. So yeah. I've kind of been, kind of been cool with that. But, um, but if you're asking me about the truth, well, let's, let's talk about the truth. <laughs> yeah, we've covered a lot of songs whenever we've gone, oh my God, is that what that means? Um, and we were pretty shocked, actually, on reflection of the things that you know I would have sang whenever I was younger and five-year-old Liam jumping around to Steps cover of Diana Ross's Chain Reaction, finding out it's about multiple orgasms <laughs> as opposed to any kind of chain metal and work. <laughs> so um, it was interesting. I have a memory. I remember watching Scrubs uh, whenever I was younger, and there was an episode of Scrubs where they all go around the hospital singing raise your little respect and I remember loving it and I hadn't heard that song in such a long time and then all of a sudden um, I'm listening to it thinking oh this song is so good and then I feel like the next week your version appeared in the UK I'm thinking it was Scrubs first, then you, but I remember it being very close together. How did that come about as a, an actual cover? Uh, when I was uh, in high school, and even earlier than that, there was a, a radio station called WDRE. Uh, it was based on Long Island, which was a little strange because most of the radio stations were New York City based. Mm -hmm. Us being like, we're like, Long Island's like the Essex of, of New York, you know? Um, so, uh, we had this radio station that went against the grain and played the Smiths. Erasure. Together we'll break these chains of love. Depeche Mode. All I ever wanted, all I ever needed is here in my arms. The Stone Roses. Smithereens. All of this sort of Britpop or Britpop influenced music, Smithereens being from New Jersey, um, I uh, the uh, it was a totally different worldview. It was like this other thing because at the time um, it was all the older brothers' heavy metal collection and classic rock collection and and whatever hip hop was making its way through in New York locally on tapes, you know. Um, but the the WDRE experience was an overseas. We finally got to hear. Uh, you know, um, I remember they uh, discovering like Susie and the Banshees on, you know, like on, on that station. And I think that um, just it, the Erasure tracks 
chains of love and a little respect that were sort of prominent on the station were both these beautiful, just like synth pop, like open, uh, emotionally available, vulnerable pop songs that were beautiful and about love. And they were just these like, um, stolen moments and in an otherwise sort of like wow where do the people who make this live you know <laughs> do they live in the land of love and rainbows what is this you know uh, uh so it was really it was really kind of powerful that way and um i learned how to play it on guitar just because i liked it i did that with everything that i liked i taught it to myself on guitar so i knew how to play that song when i was you know whatever 15 or 16 or whatever you know wow. and it was um uh, got played at, at birthdays and stuff. If you went to a wedding, it was always get played at a wedding, you know? Um, so, uh, I loved it. And when, as soon as I was able and had a band, we worked up a cover and, um, it was originally sort of a little bit dirtier, dirtier than it wound up. It was a lot more like <laughs> sloppy and like electric guitar ish, but it wound up, some of that got kept on, you know, what made its way onto the record. Um, but, um, yeah, I think when we first came out, I think a lot of people saw this. There's no way these guys know this music. They're too young to know this music kind of thing. And I, fair enough, but we did know that music from, from way back. And it was a weird, I don't think there's a lot of other places in America where there was this weird radio station that played almost exclusively Britpop on FM. So it was <laughs> like, you know, um, it was weird that way. Ned's Atomic Dustbin. I discovered on that on that radio station, you know, all these English bands. So, yeah, yeah. we're in a strange place with radio here because I'm very big on it. It just takes one radio station, one really good radio station, and they can change music so much. Uh, we've got three three major companies buying everything over, yeah, yeah. and everything's coming from London with jingles that make it seem like it's in your area. Um, so, we're, you you know, if you tried to do a tour now, you'd go to London or Manchester, and you'd be on all the stations through one guest. So it's it's. It's different, very different to what it was when you'll have been here mm. the, the first time, really. Um, but what were you listening to? You've mentioned some bits and pieces from collections. Wh- while you were in the band, what were you listening to from other artists and what other bands did you kind of respect and love? So from the second half of the 90s, I <clears throat> was drawn to um, a, a pair, of, in particular, of New York um, sort of artists, uh, Soul Coughing. And uh, Ani DeFranco. In both hands. Now use both hands. Oh, no, don't close your eyes. Both of whom, I uh, believe that they know each other actually personally. But this music drew me in because drew me in because it was sort of it was as gritty as you know my own New York experience. It was also incredibly interesting in terms of the sound design and. Um, and it was independent, or at least it seemed independent, you know. Um, true in the case of Ani DeFranco, but uh, Soul Coughing were on a major label at some point, I think. But anyway, the point being that this was like, the these were the, uh, the sort of heirs to the Velvet Underground. And as a New Yorker, I kind of felt, even though I was from Long Island, I kind of felt like I should come up right, you know, come through the city the right way and was sort of looking for and paying closer attention to local New York artists. So in the lead up to the recording of our first record, Ani DeFranco and Soul Coughing were both sort of like really in there. Uh, same with Tom Petty's records, his 90s solo record, you know, Full Moon Fever.
was a big one, but that led me to Jeff Lynne. And, you know, kind of understanding like how ELO made their records and what, what their techniques were. So this was all sort of not at the same time that it was being an influence on me musically, it was also production aesthetic that I was looking at. How do I hybridize this original sound? How do I take the metal guitar tones and drive from that I was into that are reasons I started playing guitar and uh, fuse them with this sort of like New York, uh, maybe even jazz sensibility or acoustic sensibility as Paul Simon being a New Yorker uh, or a New York artist, I should say, was a big influence on the verses of Teenage Dirtbag. Mm. You know, there's a lot of like what you would hear on on Graceland in the acoustic guitar sounds in the verse of Teenage Dirtbag. And I was looking into how do I, you know, that's why we took such a long time to record it. We recorded the thing four times from, I did it three times by myself or th two and a half times by myself. And then we moved it into, you know, our little project studio that developed over time. But the point was only that I was in the, in the laboratory trying to make Metallica. And James Taylor work together, you know, <laughs> like, how, how does how do you fuse this, you know, and that's, that's in the end, James Taylor, Paul Simon guitar with the Metallica sort of like acoustics with the Metallica ACDC chorus mm -hmm. or ish. And it was also a fair bit of, I was listening to a lot of New York hardcore at the time too, Quicksand and Helmet. Sort of more post-hardcore progressive stuff, Fugazi. So it was like that, that was the cauldron during the time. I was also always a huge Prince fan and the way he approached a pop record was in there too. Yeah. From the vocal sound and the sort of like, you know, uh, he was the only artist at the time who I could call, could call on in pop culture who would overtly do a female voice. Like, Michael Jackson got there, sure, but Prince would be the girl in the song. Like, he was comfortable doing that. And I was, got that from him, definitely. You know, that, just the, just the thought to even, that that was possible, you know. So what can you, what can you tell us about the kind of, what happens with mastering and things? Because we seem to find a lot of bands have had to like wait 20, 21 years before they can even do anything with their tracks. We're in a different position with Taylor Swift because she's, knocking on different kind of doors but what happens with the masters and what, why has there been like an issue trying to find the kind of original so it depends it depends on your contract in the end really but but if you're speaking generally uh, a song has two parts the the part that's represented by the master which is the recording the unique recording of like the original version of taylor swift's you know, first record right that's the master right but the other s source of revenue is the intellectual property the idea of the song right so her record label holds the the rights to the master but on some level she's retaining the rights to the idea that the song represents so um all through these two agencies if you have a record label that's at uh, and then you have a publishing company they might be at odds with one another that's a sort of a healthy thing so they can run checks on each other for this to to govern the whole of what you've created and you can certainly fall into a trap and lose it all that's happened to plenty that happened to john fogarty um 
Yeah. So, um, but in the case where you you don't get access to your master, that's because your record label holds it for a period of time and then also has the right to sell it on to somebody else, which is what happened with Taylor Swift. Right. So her original, as I understand it, if, forgive me if I'm if I'm speaking in ignorance, but as I've read, she she uh, her original masters were sold on to another entity, and she wasn't given the chance to bid on them herself, um, and her contract maybe did not include a. Uh, a, uh, um, a reversion clause where it would come back to her. So um, by the natural course of time, so she lost the opportunity to get her master's, still has the rights to her intellectual property. The idea of the song is hers. So if she creates a new master, then they're both hers again. Now, it's a tricky process because the reason people fall in love with songs sometimes is what the master is like, you know? Like, there is no version of The Temptations, My Girl, that comes anywhere near that first master. Right? It's just got magic all over it. So you're really, you're really tampering with the cosmos when you go to re-record something. You've got to be so careful and forensic, and you, you're, the biggest chance of anything happening is that you'll ruin it for everybody. Yeah. So we went through that with our, we were terrified, you know, I was like, I had the penultimate set of masters that had the tempos and had the, some of the drums and guitars and bass, but didn't have a lot of the vocals were missing. A lot of the emotional content was missing. It was just these skeletal versions that we were able to key off of and replace one element at a time. So we did have a bit of a blueprint going for us that way. Um, but it, there was so much like like I said, forensic investigations, like how do we get that keyboard sound? What is this? You know, we went nuts. There's a whole Reddit about the keyboard, the damn keyboard sound from, <laughs> from those three notes at the top of verse one. And then they appear again in the, in the third verse, the blah, 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 you know, that was the only part uh -huh. of that recording, the entire record that was done in a studio outside of our own. And it was this really funny little like goofy one-off that we wound up doing with somebody that we never used anything else from just that blah, blah, blah. So um, we had to find out what that was because we didn't own the gear that that, the keyboard that that was made on. <laughs> Everything else you kind of see behind me, like this is the gear we've accumulated over the years and we still have it, but it was, uh, we went nuts. But yeah, you can ruin it. And that's what, that's what the process is like. You're like, oh boy, are we really doing this? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I love that you're sitting in front of equipment in, a, in an age that's changed a lot and lots of people are literally just sitting at a, a computer and a really decent set of headphones and a, a good pair of monitor speakers as well. How has it changed for you then for, for going forward and for, for live shows? What new tech and things like that have you kind of started to use? Uh, it's a wonderful, brave new world, man. I, uh, I, uh, we were able to, for the first time, found an application um a real-time guitar emulator so i plug into my amp is now a laptop it has been before but never quite this crafted you're able to algorithmically model an original sound a recording so in the case of teenage dirtbag the new re-recorded guitar tracks i i modeled them into the computer wow uh, mm -hmm. And so now when we perform, it's the exact same thing, mm -hmm. you know, um, it's not a, it's not a dialed in notion of what that sound was. It is that algorithm. So, um, I'm loving that because that's, a, we were able to, we have something like 
I don't know, 60 or 70 songs on that available for streaming. And we were able to um, archive and, and uh, model every one of those sounds. So one of, uh, one of our sort of like funnier parts of our story is that the song that I wanted to be the first single off of our second record, which fell quickly into obscurity, I'm sure you know, is now uh, in our top five on Spotify and is the second highest earning song for, for our own royal. <laughs> so Bro. we don't know how that happened because it didn't even have a video until it was eight years old, you know? So, yeah. um, but uh, that those guitar sounds w were very difficult to, to do. I went nuts on our second record trying to really re rewrite the book on like what guitar sounds were and we were able to sample it. So I have it now, you know, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that's, that's, that's been the big reveal on prepping for the next live touring phase is that we get, we did get a chance finally to archive and emulate the, what everything that we've ever done, which is fan. You know, I love that. So around this time, big success on TV shows, what kind of shows were you going on and what kind of bands were you bumping into? Did you have any kind of like friends behind the scenes, any bands you were particularly close with or any run-ins with bands that you weren't so fond of kind of thing? Uh, I don't have any bad stories about anybody really. Um, the singer from Shed 7 was real nice to us one time, loved that guy. Um, uh, the guys in James, the band James were really friendly and lovely towards us. Um, James Brown actually said hi to me, you know, like, I'm, <laughs> like, like, I, like it, it was, it, for, for us, I must say that it was, you know, we had some, we had some pretty nasty snarls with the label people, but we were, uh, always sort of like in impressed with how polite and lovely everyone was, who was also an artist. Mm -hmm. Um, and we were in this weird situation, not unlike the one I was in in high school. I went to a high school that was very far away from my home and I wasn't a boarding student. I was a commuter. Wow. So I jumped on a train every day at 6 a.m. and took an hour and a half train ride to school and, you know, walked through the, the local neighborhood there to school and then got back on and did the same thing. And the result was that, you know, I had some pleasant interactions, but never really got to know anybody. It was a lot like that for touring because we were always there for a month bumping into people, never had a chance to stick around and be in the studio with anybody. Um, I remember Robbie Williams one time came up to us in a hotel. He's like, I want to tour with you lads. Um, you know, can we, can we talk about getting into the studio and stuff? And we opened the conversation and the next week was nine 11. Oh yes. So, mm -hmm. so like it, it, we were always sort of like, and the, the atomic kitten girls too. We, we, we bumped into them on, I think it was CD UK and a whole bunch of other sort of <laughs> pop shows. Yeah. And they were absolutely lovely. You know, we were all kind of in the same boat. Like, I can't believe we had a hit, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that kind of feeling. So it never got, it never got uh, salacious or, um, you know, uh, nothing crazy ever happened, you know. That seems to be the consensus. But then we had, and I remember clearly at the time, we had uh, tabloid press, telling you everything completely different in this country. So, you know, you, th you thought that, like, there must have been, like, boxing rings at the back of, like, CD UK and Top of the Pops in the UK, some some episodes. But on reflection, everybody now has been dead honest and said, we actually all got on. We liked each other. And anything that was any sort of um, angst was just, like, the same kind you would have got anywhere in any kind of, like, group of people where, you know, not everyone yeah. gets on, but it's fine. Yeah. yeah. The Gallagher brothers did a lot to, like, <laughs> foment that sort of, like, 
aggro shit, but n- neither of those guys can fight, so whatever. No, they can't even get on with each other, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> nobody else had another chance, and nobody else had a chance as well. To- like gro- growing up, growing up, I didn't, um, I didn't take lightly the notion of physical violence and confrontation. It was very, very serious where I came from, so I wasn't like about to get into any tabloid shit, you know, like mm-hmm. somebody asked, somebody asked me, what do you, what do you think of the, of the Gallagher brothers always fighting everybody? And I, I think I said, you know, I, I would have to just wrestle them to the ground and tell them to stop. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, but I, yeah. So it was like, you know, no Long Island no, versus no. Manchester. There you go. Uh, you know, Hey, Manchester's no joke. <laughs> I, I, I know the story. Like I'm not, I'm not fucking around with the North, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. So we're thinking then about things and tracks that you, you loved as well at that time. So again, it's kind of whether you're looking at the, the UK side of things, but were, were there songs around 2000 2001 2002 that you just you kind of maybe wished i wish i had made that oh yeah sugar babes uh well i forget the name of the song it's the train comes i don't know it's destination yeah, yeah. Overlooked. what a track that is so cool train comes i don't know it's destination it's a one-way ticket to a madman situation Of course, Muse, Plug In Baby, was just, I was like, this is a, this is a modern guitar anthem, this is incredible, these guys are gonna be rushed, you know? Uh, and, and Hole Again is a really soulful, Atomic Kitten is a beautiful song. There was lots of good stuff on the radio. The White Stripes came with their record that year. Uh, Dead Leaves on the Dirty Ground was floating around out there. I was never a big fan of uh, Fell in Love with a Girl, but it just, uh, I thought it was cool, but the Dead Leaves on the Dirty Ground was where they really got me. Mm-hmm. That was the one where I was like, ooh. This is the shit. I love that. Get Behind Me, Satan didn't come out long after that, I don't think. So that's the record that I was like, oh, man, this is so good. If you scan, this is the this is the most difficult question we always tend to kind of end on, which nobody can ever answer because we can't yet. But if you were to, off the top of your head, pluck out from the full decade a track that you think, and, and we'll, we let you pick, we're, not, we're not letting you pick your own. Uh, are there any, what you would say is like mainstream top 10 tracks across the whole from 2000 to 2000 and the end of 2009 that you thought would be the ultimate naughtiest pop track kylie minogue had a cool song that year um what's that name of that track can't get you out of my head can't get you out of my head what a tune can't get you out of my fucking head for for real (laughs) um that that song was great man Mm -hmm. that's a great song um uh, also um is it Craig David? Craig David had a r- really cool tune back then that was just like, oh man, I was just lying in a bath and listen to this for the rest of my life. You know, he had a big run. So he had seven days where he met this girl on Monday, took her for a drink on Tuesday. Um, he had fill me in. He had, why were you creeping about late? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he he this is we we've just done the the Craig David era where he was the boyo. Um, 
And then unfortunately, in TV culture, we had a TV program, which was a sketch show that destroyed his career. Really? Um, but yeah, so we had somebody that uh, used him as a joke, pretty much, which made him uncool and incredible in the UK, and he plummeted, um, which, is, which the comedians now actually uh, apologize for. It was that is a, That's a real shame. That, that was a talented original right oh man that well he covered justin bieber on a, a fire in the booth on radio one extra and uh-huh. regained his career so he's back now and he's doing amazing stuff in this country good i'm glad Woof, man that would have been a real shame big tracks and i think the the narrative for him that was played at the time in the uk was that he, he was passionate about music he talked about music with passion but it didn't match what other pop stars did mm. so he stood he stood out as being too hyper, too excited, too much of a puppy. Um, and then actually, the way he spoke in 2000 and 2001 about songs and his passion in his interviews is exactly how anybody would speak about it now and it's become more acceptable and he wasn't he wasn't following PR narratives and he wasn't following what management were telling him to say. And yeah. He, he, was ahead, he was ahead of the curve. He was way ahead of the curve. You know, I mean, when you're the real thing, I don't know, like how, how are you going to be the real thing? And still, if, he, mm-hmm. if he'd have taken everybody's advice... No one would remember, no one, you know what I mean? Like it would have been like the, the wrong thing, you know? So, um, I don't know. Uh, also around the same time we, as a band, we discovered the streets. Oh, we just disco- we just, disco- we discovered a band called the music. Do you remember them? I don't know. My, I um, know the name, but I don't know the tracks. Same- I actually listened to three of the streets albums last week in the car when I was driving around. Right. So it's quite right. Oh man. Don't mug yourself. <laughs> that, that like, um, Sli- slightly problematic, perhaps, but my <laughs> God, like nobody was making music like that back then. By all means, you can vibe with this girl, but just don't just mug yourself. Don't That's all. Don't mug yourself. Seriously, mate, you fucker. No, no, don't no. So I mean, I fucking. I'm not. Oh man, it was just like it, that was a really good. I feel like that was a really good year for songs. I don't know, because because I'm a New Yorker and was only involved in your pop culture in in sort of like moments when we would go and visit and do stuff. Uh, I can't necessarily speak to like the, the grander arc of UK singles or anything like that, but I just remember going over there and thinking, these people care about song. <laughs> this is great. This is like, felt so validated, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, so, um, but, uh, but uh, yeah, it was like, it was like, uh, it was like that. It was, and you know, Destiny's Child had a crazy, crazy time that year as well. Jessica Simpson was all over the charts. I remember that too. He was a label mate of ours and was lovely uh, when we bumped into each other here and there. Yeah, um, but I would have, if I had to say any any one song, I would say it was that Sugar Babes track. Love it. That was the one for me. Um, is there anything else you want to cover off or tell us about what you've got going on plug for yourself, Brendan? Uh, sure. There's a, there's a, if for people who are interested in, um, in the deeper dive or the deepest dive, uh, for, uh, Teenage Dirtbag and it's, and it's, uh, existence at all. Uh, there's a documentary that's been worked on for over 10 years about Ooh. us called You Might Die. Um, and it's uh, it's about finished. We're, we're going through, uh, final cuts now, just looking and seeing like, Obviously, contextually, a, a movie that's been on for that long uh, with the COVID thing, it's kind of like, oh, well, wait a minute, you know, we're having a September 11th moment here. Things are going to be different after. What are we saying? You know? uh, but uh, they went on tour with us for years, 
and went with me to my hometown and wow. uh, looked under all of the the old logs in the woods, so to speak. So um, that's going to be a deep dive. Uh, the 2020 anniversary edition with 20 songs on it is um, going to come out this year, probably by about August, uh, when we hope to be on the road with Alien Ant Farm in the States. Um, as well as uh, it, leading up to that, we're going to release the singles from it in pairs. So one one song from the original album that you know, and it's sort of antimatter particle um <laughs> companion uh as single pairs the first of which is already out teenage dirtbag and the song mope as well as um uh the second song from our first record a song called sunshine and is paired with a song called through that our backing vocalist joey wrote for the band so um uh, those are currently on spotify right now streaming and uh just talk to us on twitter because we're pretty accessible and uh, that's it really oh we have our patreon too uh patreon.com forward slash weedus we have like a sort of weekly um hang with everybody on zoom where we play songs and and we play uh like terrible versions of uk game shows like countdown and you know <laughs> <laughs> uh you know uh what's the one that's um uh no points i'm getting it wrong uh pointless pointless, pointless. pointless. yeah <laughs> Mm-hmm. See, yeah. American. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so we we make fools of ourselves trying to trying to do the smart uh, TV game shows that the UK has for years now. Yeah, <laughs> we've just turned. What, what's the one with the coin? We have one now that. Uh, do you know when when we would go to like an arcade, you would stick two p and it would knock the other two pences off, and it would go in. There's like a full game of that, which is like what you do in a bowling alley when you've got like bronze yeah. coins in your wallet or something. We sit, <laughs> we watch somebody play that game and are completely gripped. Um, have you got, have you got a goggle box in America? Do you know what goggle box is? Uh, I don't think so. Perhaps we have our own word for that. Maybe it's it's people. It's us watching people watching TV while they eat takeaways. Uh, oh, I can't say so, that we have that. Uh. <laughs> it, it, it's like there's about seven or eight different families or pairs and the cameras are in their house and they watch the lead TV programs from across the week and you watch them watch the programs that you've just watched. So it could be Ant and Dick from CDUK Saturday Night Takeaway. It could be something that gets a sin. It could be the news where it's it's a really sad story and you watch them react to programs that you've just watched yourself and it comes out like, two or three days after you've watched it. it. It sounds like it shouldn't be a brilliant TV program. It is amazing just watching people sit on their sofa, watch telly. It's- that is the single most UK thing I've ever heard of. Uh-huh. That's That takes the <laughs> yeah. cake. That beats the queen jumping out of a helicopter or whatever. Like, <laughs> That's all so ridiculous. <laughs> it is. It's so it, it's huge. There's been some great moments and things in it too, and you can see that they're laughing one second, they're crying the next. Um, there's some. I think the funniest thing I've seen recently was a guy on the telly was going, "Oh my, um, my Fitbit says that I did four thousand calories last night at eleven thirty-seven. I don't know what that is. I was in bed at eleven thirty-seven, and it turned out that he was giving himself a treat, and he just announced on the television." <laughs> that he- <laughs> Is that how many calories that is? Oh. I don't know if it was four, I don't know if it was four thousand, but he he'd done his daily peak activity. Well, I didn't like to learn that, that way, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, yeah. So on on that note, we can say goodbye on the end. A little bit of masturbation. <laughs> finish the interview on the wank note. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The naughtiest naughty. There you, <laughs> there you go. Have it. Yeah. Does what it says. Okay. Yeah. But thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. Thanks um, for having me. Thank you very much to go with. We really appreciate it coming on, and thank you so much for just giving us your time. Sure. Really, we really appreciate. It. Thank, thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. It's been, it's been fun. I've, I've laughed and I've cried, and, and it's been fantastic. <laughs> 
So there you go. That was Brendan B. Brown from Wheatus. What a lovely guy. Wasn't he so nice? He was actually amazing. As in, I think I've got a major man crush on him now. Just so, so good at what he does. So personable. Um, and just like a bit of a talent. Yeah, great. And he got up at nine o'clock in the morning for us too. Obviously, with him being in New York. I know. Who gets up at nine o'clock for an interview? Certainly not me. I couldn't be chewing och- oh. that. <laughs> I know. Honestly, he's been so supportive the whole way through everything, even through the World Cup as well. Yeah. Um, his engagement been, it's just been so brilliant. Um, and not, not in a way to like get the fans in to vote. It was everything done in the voting was literally just actual love yeah. for, for the track as yeah. well. But yeah, I, um, lots of love for Brandon now. Like. When the conversation finished, it was a shame because I, I, my... my I'm not in that conversation very much, am I? Because my Wi-Fi was an absolute nightmare for the entire time. Um, <laughs> I disconnected for a full like 20 minutes through that conversation. It was and I so came funny. back. I came back and it was just you and uh, you and Brendan chatting. And you were like, and Brendan just goes, oh, Liam's back. <laughs> and I felt so bad afterwards because like, I wanted to just ask him so many questions and chat to him for ages. But um, yeah, I was barely there. And at the end of the conversation, I was kind of like, can we talk to him again at some point? Because I really want to talk to I you know. again. And it was the same as what you said. Like, I, w- I want to be his mate. Like, I really felt, I really felt like a connection with him. But <laughs> It's funny yeah. though because oh, thank you, Brendan. We really <laughs> as well as you it. being disappearing for twenty minutes. Um, every time you did speak or I spoke, there was like a ten second delay between you cutting in. So <laughs> yeah. it was you. You've never been more Dougal Maguire in your life, off Father Ted. It just seemed like you were really simple because you would ask a question, <laughs> wait, and then you'd be like, uh huh. <laughs> It's tricky though because with, with, so with like Teenage Dirtbag being you know a very sunny happy song uh, but also being about a satanic murder it could very likely have been the case that I was laughing while he was talking about yes uh-huh. oh, yeah doesn't doesn't bear thinking no. yeah it doesn't bear thinking but yeah the, yeah oh, yeah anyway now now you know what happened behind the scenes and it was um, <laughs> at, the, the, the interview finished and I was not like <laughs> I was not feeling great but I've listened back to it and I really enjoyed listening so Scott it's credit to you because uh, you kept that thing moving very nicely and, uh, and Brendan was a really interesting guests. So it was all him. As a listener, he, he, hearing most of that for the first time in the correct order and stuff, I really enjoyed it. So thank <laughs> you. <laughs> um, so we'll try and get you some more guests in the future. If you like this one, please do let us know. Make a big song and dance because if, you know, we'll try and get more guests in the future and they see all of you lot yeah. uh, loving it and sharing it and stuff, then maybe we can kind of get more people involved. That's what it kind of needs, I think. These uh, celebrities, they need their ego stroking a bit. Not that Brendan did, but I think some of them do. Uh, and we want to talk to them, so please stroke their egos, stroke our egos. Give yourself a good stroke, why not? Uh, <laughs> TNN Pod on Twitter. And uh, we'll see you this coming Friday for another episode of The Naughty Snorty. Oh, Thank right. you very much, Scott. Goodbye, I love you.